The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you. Can you hear me? Sometimes I can't tell if this is working. Great. Thank you. <clears throat> so, hello. Um, I am going to start with a poem. With apologies to Lewis, I know hates people who start with poems, but he doesn't hate me, he just hates the practice. <laughs> and what I'm going to read you is St. Francis in the Sow, which is by uh, Galway Cannell, if you've heard this poem. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch that it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing, as St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length, from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and the slops to the spiritual curl of the tail. From the hand's hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the sheer blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 teats into the 14 mouths, sucking and blowing beneath them, the long, perfect loveliness of Sal. Now, I particularly like this poem. The first time I heard this poem, I was a little put off. What's the point? What's the point? The point is seeing things as they really are. So, recently we ran an introduction to mindfulness course online, and one of, the, one of my students had this amazing discovery. She discovered, all of a sudden, the glowing, lovely, lovable self, herself. She was very surprised. She thought she would never, ever feel like she was good enough. Now, this didn't surprise me because I've actually been talking to her for a number of years. But her, she was surprised. She was surprised to discover this inherent goodness in herself because she was so used to trying to be better, trying to be better. I was struck by how common it is in us, this fear of not being good enough. Have you ever felt not good enough? I have. Not good enough. Lots of ways I've felt not good enough. Perhaps you know this condition, and perhaps... You know the condition of, that my friend discovered, the discovery that actually, you know, deep down you're pretty good. <laughs> so 
somewhere in you is a source of goodness. It may come as a surprise. It, the feeling of, yeah, you know, I'm actually a pretty good person, can come and go. The thing about it, though, is the feeling of feeling okay, that okayness, is something you can't really unknow. You can lose track of it. You can, it can be overwhelmed by the other things in your life that can convince you that you're not okay. But once you know that, it's a source of some faith and confidence and some little knowing that is just itching at you to say, you know, there must be something about this There is another possibility that I am good enough. Somehow even saying good enough sounds like not good enough, you know? It's like, well, good enough. It's okay. What I want to talk about tonight is the suffering that arises from the sense of not being good enough. And the insight that arises from seeing it pass away. So, we all know, I wasn't kind enough, I'm not a good practitioner, I'm not a good meditator. You know, years down the road, I suddenly forgot how to meditate, I didn't know how to do it anymore. Uh, I'm not far enough on the path, I've been doing this, you know, for something over 20 years, and... Um, I do not consider myself an enlightened being. But what I do have is a lot of experience with the benefits of having been a meditator. A lot of experience. And it is experience that serves me well. There are insights that have arisen out of the practice that leave me saying, ah, oh, yes, ah, I get that. And so I persevere. We all persevere. And I've discovered it's not very useful to ask how far along am I on the path. (laughs) Doesn't doesn't really do anything for me. Mostly I want to know what's going on right now. How am I right now? And sometimes right now is great. Sometimes I'm scared. Sometimes I just don't feel good enough. You know, I'm not a good partner or husband or wife. I worry about uh, how ethical am I? Am I really ethical? Am I doing the right thing here? I'll do something and the result is not what I expect. It wasn't my intended effect. Oh, what does that mean? How, how is that reflecting back? There's the feeling that I'll never be good enough for my parents, my teacher, my spouse, my children. I'll never be good enough for my boss. These kinds of beliefs give rise to a lot of agitation, restlessness, worry, doubt, 
Some of these are recognizable as common hindrances to meditating, like doubt and restlessness. But the worry that arises out of them, that's the suffering that we really don't want. You know, the, all of us have taken up meditation or the pursuit of a spiritual path for some reason. I'm hoping that the primary reason is not to be a better person. <laughs> I'm hoping that the primary reason is to find peace. Just peace. Just this. Just the ease of moving through life. When the Buddha described his awakening, the way he talked about it was this. I directly knew... I directly knew, as it actually is, this is suffering. I directly knew, as it actually is, this is the arising of suffering. I directly knew, as it actually is, this is the cessation of suffering. I directly knew, as it actually is, this is the practice leading to the cessation of suffering. Another way to do this, another way to do the contemplation might be, I directly knew if doubt is present, one knows. There is doubt in me, doubt's here. When doubt is not present, one knows there is no doubt present in me now. And he knows how unarisen doubt can arise. How arisen doubt can be removed and how a future arising of doubt can be prevented. Okay? Really? How? How do you do that? What does that really mean? So I want to break that down a little bit. So if we take, let's say... uh, This afternoon, oh, about four o'clock, I realized that I'd spent hours thinking about what I was going to talk about tonight and that I really hadn't put anything down on paper. And it occurred to me that um, I could flop. I could not have anything useful to say. I was not going to be good enough. I was not going to be able to just come up off the top of my head with what I wanted to say. I could give the talk I gave a couple of days ago, but that would really be cheating, and besides, they record them, it would be embarrassing. But mostly I was thinking about, I didn't want to let people down. I didn't want to come here and not have something to say. (laughs) And I realized, aha, this is actually the topic, right? This is fear of not being good enough. This is fear of not being good enough. And I thought, okay, in that case, I'm going to go for a walk. (laughs) because what I wanted to say about the fear of not being good enough had to do with trying to see clearly what's really happening. What's really happening? So when you come up with the idea of not good enough, this not good enoughness, there is something that is driving it. Some fear, some uncertainty, some... And it is my experience 
that by just looking at what is happening, it's possible to not get tied up in the story about how this could be a disaster. So I decided to go for a walk, and off I went. And of course, today is a gorgeous day. It's absolutely beautiful. And I was out wandering around, and and by chance, I walked by one particular path, and there were dogwoods blooming. And I thought, if I had not gone out, I might not have come up to this part. I might never have seen the dogwoods bloom this year. And what a delightful surprise that was. Oh, I got to see the dogwoods bloom. Because they don't bloom very long, and you know it was possible that I might not have gone up that street. And it reminded me, not of serendipity, but of the wisdom of being open to just watching and just letting what is true be true. And what was true was I needed to walk away from all of the confusion. I had books piled all over my desk. It's, you know, far more prep than was necessary. <laughs> and no product. And I said, aha, this is it. This is, this is that place. This is that place of seeing, noticing, being in the moment that lightens and ends the suffering of worrying about being good enough. Because the suffering, recognizing the suffering is an important part. It is the feeling of not being good enough that was the suffering. It had nothing to do with whether I was going to be good enough or not. It had nothing to do with it. But the idea that in order to be successful, I had to do X, that view about what it should look like, that, that was causing the suffering. My attachment to that view. Mindfulness, when we think about mindfulness, it's really more than that kind of overall general, I know what's going on right now. What's important is the precision of mindfulness. It's looking very carefully at what you're seeing instead of what you're expecting to see or what you might see. But just, oh, this is what's happening. And seeing it without adding a story to explain it, fix it, change it. Because it turns out that suffering isn't so much about what is or is not as it is our relationship to what is. Okay, So when, we, when we're talking about being good enough, we're comparing ourselves to some ideal, some idea of what should be true. And then we're found, finding that it isn't this idea of how, what should be true. And all of a sudden we're experiencing this dislocation of this isn't the way I want it to be. This is not the way it should be. This is not the way it was supposed to be. And we lose our way in the story explaining what it turns out is just agitation or confusion or uncertainty. And the precision of looking at just uncertainty and confusion 
and saying, oh, confusion is here. That's when I got up and went for the walk. Because pushing through confusion was not going to get me where I needed to go. But seeing confusion and saying, oh, confusion. It wasn't something I had to fix or change. But seeing it was clarity. Does that make sense? It's the the clarity of the vision that we're looking for here. Watching the confusion, going outside. Confusion was gone because I was no longer worried about that. I was out walking. So I was able to see the arising of suffering, the arising of confusion. I was able to see, oh, this is not confusing. (laughs) I am not in confusion. Confusion is not here. I was able to see the energy that it was taking to stay at my desk and grind something out. So, oh, this was causing the confusion. And I saw the confusion ending. One of the problems we have is that we tend to believe all our thoughts. Do you believe your thoughts? You know, we we ascribe our thoughts a great deal of authority. Sometimes that authority comes from the voice that we hear. You know, it's it's my father's voice saying, you should be. Or it's my teacher's voice saying, have you? Or it's my husband's voice saying, not again. Whatever that voice is, sometimes we ascribe authority to that. Sometimes we think, think our thoughts are wiser than they are. We equate wisdom and thinking when thinking can really be quite random, it can be, we, we're not particularly responsible for our thoughts unless we continue the story. You know, juice it up a little bit. Okay, I, I, I know this story. This is one of my favorite stories. I'm going to tell this story to myself more and more and more. And the agitation is getting more and more and more. You know, it's sort of like uh, the dream you have... Uh, that it's the end of the semester and you, you haven't cracked a book and you have to go to the, your final exam, those kinds of dreams. Or you you're arrive at the airport and your suitcase is empty. You know, These are stories. They're fantasies. But we tell ourselves stories like this all the time. And then, and then we believe them. And so we end up thinking, oh, well, I'm not good enough because I have all these faults. Also, questioning this authority in our thoughts can give rise to confusion, especially if we're not in the habit of questioning our thoughts. You know, so I may have a thought. Let's um, I'll give you an example. So, so uh, this afternoon, I told my husband I was going to talk about uh, fear of not being good enough. And he said, oh, good, I'm going to listen to that. So at dinner, I told him, you know, when you said that, it absolutely terrified me. And he immediately began telling me about, oh, it wasn't his intention, it, you know, trying to make things better. And, and what I meant when I said it terrified me was, it made me remember that I had to create a context for what I wanted to say. <laughs> now, here were two people having this conversation, 
totally missing each other, totally missing. And we could have spent the next half hour discussing how we were misunderstanding each other. But instead, what happened is I said, oh, he's trying to be kind. I don't really care whether he listens to it or not, so I'm not going to worry about that. And I didn't engage in, in my half of the conversation. It went somewhere else. So suffering did not arise there. It didn't come into the oh, hand-wringing stage because we just didn't go there. These possibilities exist all the time. We can engage in the story or we cannot engage in the story. Engaging in the story increases the possibility of suffering. The story is about what happened before or what could happen in the, in the future. What happened before is already done, can't be fixed, can't be changed. The future is total fantasy. But what's really important is what's happening now. What's going on right now? With the, with the amount of precision that we can find into what's happening now. What, what is the information that I am getting about my life. The only way we can experience the life, our lives is through our senses, hear, taste, smell, feel, and our thoughts. This is how we experience life. It doesn't happen any other way. So we pay attention to that. Okay, I notice that I'm hunched over. Okay, the weight of the world must be on my shoulders. Oh, Really? I didn't know that. So noticing what's going on in our body is an important part of that. Realizing the difference between reflection that asks wise questions and just free-floating fantasy, following a story down the the road, is an art. And it takes a lot of practice to tell the difference. What is, what is wise questioning? And what is just papancha? Just the story runs on. The Buddha said, no person can be found who has been, is, or will be only criticized or only praised. That's cool. No person can be found who has been, is, or will be only criticized or only praised. That's useful. That's useful. It is really not important for me only to be praised. Unless I'm just feeling kind of insecure and really wondering, and what does that person think of me? What does that person think of me? And what I've discovered is it's more important what's happening now. Okay, so if I'm worrying about what that person thinks, oh, I'm worrying about what that person thinks. What's that about? Now I'm no longer worrying about what that person thinks. I'm, now I'm curious about what that's about. It's possible to watch your thoughts shift and change. What we're looking for is the discipline 
of watching the mind because everything starts in the mind or in the body. How do they interact? Suffering does not come from what is not. Suffering doesn't come because I'm not something. Suffering comes because I think this should be true and it's not, and I don't like that. So noticing when I'm feeling, oh, this is unpleasant. This is really unpleasant. This is scary. This is confusing. And allow that to be true. To be confused and not require that you fix it. To be sad and just say, oh, sadness is here. Sadness. Really? Huh? Yeah, sadness. Because then you're not looking for someone to blame. Blaming someone else, blaming herself. It just is. It just is. And so much of what just is, is interpreted by us. The suffering comes out of what I think about it. So if I'm standing here, I have my hand like this, and I go like this. And, you know, I've got my, my palm is face down, and I kind of flip it off to the side. Now this gesture, what does this gesture mean to you? This gesture might mean, I don't care about that. This gesture might be seen as totally dismissive. When what I'm thinking about is Ajahn Sudam, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, Ajahn Sumedho, who would say, it's like this, when he was talking about how to be aware of the present moment. So, so rather than being flipping it off, it is a gesture in my mind that has to do with just seeing, just being, just here. Totally different. And there was no way for anyone else in the room to know that, unless they were familiar with Ajahn Sumedho and had it in context. You know, it's unlikely. Unlikely. So much of what we do is interpreting something as opposed to just paying attention to what it is. Oh, Maria just flipped her hand. Huh. Maybe it hurts. It doesn't have to be blameworthy just because it's uncomfortable. So the practice is to notice when something is uncomfortable and say, oh, it's uncomfortable. And not have to blame it, explain it, fix it. This takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of practice. If you can stop telling yourself the story, the pain stops. You know, it's, when you're sitting, I no longer get to sit cross-legged. My, my physical therapist doesn't want me to do this because I have really bad knees. And, um, you know, I'm sitting here, I feel fine. <laughs> it feels just fine. But I've sat here very long, the pain would start to bother me. 
And then I could spend all my time thinking about, oh, the consequences of this are, you know, I'm going to have to have knee surgery day after tomorrow. This is what the mind does. It spins out stories. The real practice is learning to be able to just be in this moment. Not yesterday, not tomorrow. Just in this moment. It turns out, just in this moment, it's really hard to be a bad person. It's really hard to not be good enough, to just be here. Just here. It's useful to say, why am I practicing? Why am I doing this? Because there is some goal you have, some reason you have, for wanting to be at ease and to recognize in yourself that desire to be at ease which is a beneficial thing ease there is a a quote I have here from Hafiz he said now that all your worry has proved such an unlucrative business why not find another job I like that. The job becomes one not so much of finding fault or reason or explaining, but to see as clearly as possible, oh, this is what's going on now. This is what's happening. This is how I really feel. I feel unsettled. It's really uncomfortable. Oh. Or to say to oneself, I'm feeling really good. (laughs) You know what? I'm feeling really good. And rather than not trusting that and not telling yourself why it shouldn't be true, you just say, well, that felt good. Because inevitably, you see the rise and the fall. The rise and the fall. This is what we really see in mindfulness. This is what we see when we say, what's happening now? It changes very rapidly. We can't hold on to it. We can't pretend it isn't happening. Oh. So we can come to know directly as it actually is. This is joy. This is suffering. This is what gives rise to joy. This is what gives rise to suffering. This is what causes joy to end. This is what causes the end of suffering. This is the practice that leads to joy. This is the practice that leads to suffering, the end of suffering. It's possible to see all of these things. So, I'm going to... Read one more poem, a Hafiz poem. This one is, We Have Not Come to Take Prisoners. We have not come here to take prisoners, 
but to surrender ever more deeply to freedom and joy. We have not come into this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love. Run, my dear, from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run like hell, my dear, from anyone likely to put a sharp knife into the sacred, tender vision of your beautiful heart. We have a duty to befriend befriend those aspects of obedience that stand outside of our house and shout to our reason, Oh, please, oh, please, come out and play. For we have not come here to take prisoners or to confine our wondrous spirits, but to experience ever and ever more deeply our divine courage, freedom, and light. We've not come here to take prisoners. We don't do this practice to be difficult, to be sad, to emphasize suffering, to prove to ourselves that we're not good enough. We don't take prisoners. The practice is one of freedom. The practice is designed to say, ah, in seeing what causes suffering, I can let go of it. In seeing and removing myself from this story, but just seeing This is what's happening. There is ease in this moment. I don't know what's going to happen next. In this moment. Ah, great. Practice that. Practice the ah of this moment. Those are my thoughts. Thank you for listening. Does anyone have any comments? Tomatoes to throw? I'm good at catching tomatoes. Okay. So we're going to finish early this evening, and I'm going to give myself the great satisfaction of being okay with that. Good night. Thank you very much.